0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and Part 2 of the Battle of Kings Mountain, a decisive victory for American patriots, and a crushing loss for not only the British, but more importantly, the Loyalists that had joined the British throughout the South trying to crush patriot resistance. The American Revolution, as it was fought in the South, was America's first bloody civil war a prolonged battle between those who wanted to live and thrive as subjects of a foreign king who had staked his claim on American soil, and those who wanted to live free and rule their own lives and country. And the British made every effort to divide them politically and pit them against each other, at one point, at least in the southern states, wondering if they would kill each other off entirely. The Lower South, a region more often associated with the American Civil War of 1860, was ravaged as no other section of America during the American Revolution. The war in the South went a long way in deciding the final Patriot victory and set the stage for the British defeat at Yorktown in 1781. As explained briefly in Part 1, the Southern Campaign began with British concern over the course of the war in the North. Failure at Saratoga, fear of French intervention, and overall failure to bring the rebels to heel persuaded British military strategists to turn their attention to the South. Some in Britain even suggested that New England, that hotbed of sedition, was a lost cause anyway, and not worth the effort, temporarily or even permanently. The British did have some success in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, not to mention their long occupation of New York City, but failed to consolidate their efforts. They appeared, in fact, to lack any overall strategy to crush the rebels. Early on, British military strategists saw the South as a Loyalist stronghold. There were the Highland Scots of the Cape Fear region in North Carolina, strong Anglicans in coastal areas, those with grudges against colonial governments, Indian traders, mercantilists, late-arriving immigrants, and those running from the law, and slaves would gladly pick up a British musket in return for freedom, all having reasons to remain loyal to or sign on to the crown. The South, however, was more sharply divided than British estimates figured. The strengthening of loyalist sentiment and consequent patriot hostility resurrected age-old animosities and loyalties as regions, individuals, and even families chose sides. Consequently, The war in the South took on the nature of a violent civil war. Raids, murders, and reprisals became the order of the day. No one's property was safe. Even, at times, families were fractured as members differed over the war. Plantations were plundered and crops destroyed. With civil government virtually collapsed, violence and hatred grew to the point of hope for victory as the only solution. Forced to choose between collaboration or rebellion, many Americans chose the latter. More and more, guerrilla warfare replaced orthodox fighting, which turned the British to using brutal tactics against the colonists who spurned them. British officers like Bloody Banistry Tarleton left a trail of death and destruction behind him all over the state of North Carolina and South Carolina. There was nothing his loyalist forces were prevented from doing. Major Patrick Ferguson was also given a command and a large contingent of Loyalists, whom he treated more like equals and whom he kept a watch on to limit atrocities. He hated Tarleton, and the feeling was mutual. From the beginning, the British were undaunted. With such perceived Loyalist support, British victory over the rebels would be an easy one. A quick expedition south to restore the King's friends to power over patriots who had earlier wrested control from royal governors. With Georgia and South Carolina under firm Loyalist control, red coated British troops could then subdue North Carolina and Virginia. British General Henry Clinton, in his memoirs, The American Rebellion, stated that the British goal in the South was to support the Loyalists and restore the authority of the King's government. Intense British political pressure emphasized Loyalist related strategies as a means of victory. Additionally, some British strategists envisioned a Chesapeake squeeze in which British forces in the north would drive south toward Virginia, creating a pincer's movement and trapping American forces. The Chesapeake, wrested from American control, would serve as a base for British naval operations. We know from history that their version of the squeeze didn't work out quite the way they had envisioned, when Cornwallis was squeezed at Yorktown between French naval forces and American and French militia under Washington's command. The British had additional motives for the South. Southern agricultural products, notably tobacco, rice, and indigo were important to British mercantile interests. British strategists saw the Carolinas, Georgia, East Florida, the Bahamas, and Bermuda as an important post-war trade grouping and an integral part of the West Indies sugar trade. Savannah, and more importantly Charleston, would fit well into such a grouping. Charleston was especially coveted as the most important southern port and the fourth largest and richest city in North America. The fall of Charleston on May twelfth, 1780, was perhaps the worst defeat Americans suffered during the entire Revolution. Subsequent British victories at the Waxhaws, Camden, and Fishing Creek eliminated much of the Southern Continental Army and made the British confident that the South was theirs. Events in the North and the South led to a feeling of patriot desperation by the summer of 1780. The seriousness of the day-to-day combat between patriots, called Whigs, and loyalists, called Tories, in the Carolinas, is shown in a military report of the time. The report read, "...the animosity between Whigs and Tories of this state renders their situation truly deplorable. There is not a day passes, but there are those who fall a sacrifice to this savage disposition. The Whigs seem determined to extirpate the Tories, and the Tories the Whigs. Some thousands have fallen in this way in this quarter, and the evil rages with more violence than ever. If a stop cannot be put to these massacres... The country will be depopulated in a few months more as neither Whig nor Tory can live. The southern Whigs included among their numbers both rich and poor. They were people who placed principle above personal gain. They came, or were descended from, people who had come from Western Europe to America to escape religious and civil persecution and to find a new life where the dignity of the individual would be respected. Living as a British subject was just not in their dna as explained in part 1 these were the darkest days for the revolution something big was needed to turn the tide of the revolution and that something big was to happen on a summit in the south carolina foothills on the border of north carolina known as king's mountain that would happen on october 7th 1780 9 miles south of the present day town of king's mountain north carolina in what is now rural Cherokee County, South Carolina, where the Patriot Militia defeated the Loyalist Militia commanded by British Major Patrick Ferguson of the 71st Foot. The battle has been described as the war's largest all-American fight. Ferguson had arrived in North Carolina in early September 1780 to recruit troops for the Loyalist Militia and protect the flank of Lord Cornwallis' main force. Ferguson issued a challenge to the rebel militias to lay down their arms or suffer the consequences. In response, the Patriot militias led by Benjamin Cleveland, James Johnston, William Campbell, John Sevier, Joseph McDowell, and Isaac Shelby rallied for an attack on Ferguson. Those kind of challenges did not go unanswered. Major Patrick Ferguson was appointed Inspector of Militia on May 22, 1780. His task was to march to the old Tryon County, North Carolina area, just north of the South Carolina border, to raise and organize Loyalist units from the Tory population of the Carolina backcountry, and to protect the left flank of Lord Cornwallis' main body at Charlotte, North Carolina. Major Patrick Ferguson was a force to be dealt with, and deserves a few minutes of our time. I had first read about him in a novel titled The Ferguson Rifle, written by one of my favorite Western authors, Louis L'Amour, who, in addition to telling tales of the American West, often covered stories that centered around early American colonists. Ferguson was a Scotsman, as his name implies. At an early age, he decided to use his ability as a horseman and hunter and to become a soldier, despite an upbringing and education that could have landed him anywhere. At the age of 15, a commission was purchased for him and he entered upon active service on July twelfth, 1759 as a cornet in the Royal North British Dragoons. With a slight frame, Ferguson was not an individual of commanding appearance and it might have been thought that he was poorly suited to military service. This shortcoming was made up for in soldierly determination, however, and he was also, as one biographer put it, blessed by inheritance with a serious disposition Unusual ability, sound judgment, and energy in ample measure. He proved to be an excellent soldier and a born commander. Sickness interrupted Ferguson's service in the field from 1762 to 1768, but he wasn't idle during that time of his recovery in Scotland and entered actively into public discussion of the extension of the militia laws of England to Scotland. This activity gave him some early insight into the problems and prepared him for the role he later played in the Carolinas as Inspector of Militia. He enjoyed a second leave of absence from military service just prior to the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, and during this period, he pursued an intensive study of military science and tactics and developed a breech-loading rifle known today as the Ferguson Rifle. It was a brilliant invention, as it could fire five balls per minute where the typical musket took a full minute to reload and fire. It could be loaded and fired from a prone position and could be recocked while on the run, making it a far more effective weapon, at least in terms of ease of operation and speed of firing than the typical long musket. In 1777, Ferguson was sent to America with the reputation of being one of the best, if not the best, marchman in the British Army. At the time, he held a captaincy, which was attained on September 1, 1768. He was in command of a corps of at least a hundred riflemen, whom he had personally trained in the use of his new breech-loading rifle, as well as in the use of bayonet. During the earlier years of his service in America, Ferguson participated in numerous actions in the North. Among these was the Battle of Brandywine on September 11, 1777, in which he was so severely wounded in the right arm that its usefulness was impaired during the remainder of his life. His loyalty was rewarded on October 25, 1779, when he was promoted to the rank of Major. A few months later, at the start of the British expedition against Charleston, he was given the temporary rank of Lieutenant Colonel. His ability and personal magnetism enabled him to win the respect of all his associates, and his success as an officer was as notable in the South as it had previously been in the North. This was his last campaign, and in its course he demonstrated a sense of fairness and a degree of humanity that earned him the respect of many of the people of the South. As mentioned previously, he was a different style of commander than Tarleton, and his men respected, not feared, him. As the opportunity permitted, he attempted to persuade many of these Americans to renew their oath of allegiance to the King of England. And his success at that won the admiration of his associates, among whom was General Stewart of Garth, who wrote upon the demise of Ferguson. By zeal, animation, and a liberal spirit, he gained the confidence of the mass of people. Even more revealing of his character are the following lines written from America by Ferguson to his mother to calm her fears for his safety. The length of our lives is not at our command, however much the manner of them may be. If our Creator enabled us to act the part of honor, and to conduct ourselves with spirit, probity, and humanity, the change to another world whether now or fifty years hence will not be for the worse. The earliest use of the Ferguson rifle was on American soil by riflemen whom Major Ferguson had personally trained. It was used at the Battle of Brandywine and is said to have been used later with possibly a few having been in action at King's Mountain. Ferguson at Brandywine, had General George Washington in his sights with a clear shot, but the sight of Washington sitting proudly on his horse, calmly directing his officers during the heat of battle, engendered enough respect from Ferguson so that for that moment he couldn't pull the trigger. The successful use of the Ferguson rifle in battle is sufficient proof that its inventor had made a notable contribution to military technology and developed a most effective arm. Unfortunately, It was at least 90 years ahead of its time. Only 200 were known to have been made. Some say only 100. What happened to these Ferguson rifles continues to be a matter of conjecture. While Ferguson convalesced after the Battle of Brandywine, his rifle corps was disbanded and his rifles put in storage by Sir William Howe. Later an undetermined number were withdrawn from storage for further service. Though it can be assumed a number were destroyed in action and others carried off for use as new hunting rifles, a large number still remain unaccounted for. We have no idea today how many were used at the Battle of Kings Mountain, or how many were captured. A quick search online came up with one listing from Morphy Auctions. Only 100 Ferguson rifles were made for military use during the Revolutionary War, and only about 12 are known to exist today, with half of them in museum collections, thus unavailable to collectors. The listing went on to say, This desirable rifle will be offered as part of the estate of Walter O'Connor to be sold at Morphe Auctions in Denver, Pennsylvania on September twenty-sixth, 2018 with an estimate of $75,000 to $150,000. Personally, I'll bet it went much higher. We'll rejoin our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. On the morning of August 18, 1780, 200 mounted Patriot partisans under joint command of Colonels Isaac Shelby, James Williams, and Eliza Clark prepared to raid a Loyalist camp at Musgrove's Mill, which controlled the local grain supply and guarded a ford of the Inori River. The Battle of Musgrove Mill occurred near a ford of the Inori River near the present-day border between Spartanburg, Lawrence, and Union Counties in South Carolina. The Patriots anticipated surprising a garrison of about an equal number of Loyalists, but a local farmer informed them that the Tories had recently been reinforced by about a hundred Loyalist militia and 200 provincial regulars on their way to join British Major Patrick Ferguson. The whole battle took perhaps an hour, and within that period, 63 Tories were killed, an unknown number wounded, and 70 were taken prisoner the Patriots lost only about four dead and 12 wounded. Some Whig leaders briefly considered attacking the Tory stronghold at 96, but they hurriedly dispersed after learning that a large Patriot army had been defeated at Camden three days previous. And just so you know, 96, which is mentioned numerous times in this story, was a frontier town that was the site of more than one battle, and a location which the British and the Patriots felt was strategically important. The British built a star fort there, which has been rebuilt and preserved, and it's located there today as a national park and battlefield site, and they offer reenactments. It's about 60 miles south of Greenville, South Carolina. On September 2nd, Ferguson and the militia he had already recruited marched west in pursuit of Shelby toward the Appalachian Mountain Hill Country on what is now the Tennessee-North Carolina border. This mountain hill country was the last important stronghold in the Carolinas which had remained undisturbed by Cornwallis' victories and the Tory raids in that summer of 1780. This was the region of the foothills and ranges of the Appalachian Mountains which stretched through northwestern South Carolina, western North Carolina, and into the present eastern Tennessee. Here the independent mountain yeoman, largely of Scotch-Irish descent, were establishing a new frontier and protecting their crude homes from the nearer threat of the border indians their free pioneer life had existed without interference from the king's officials and they were little concerned with the main course of the war on the seaboard ferguson didn't immediately pursue those mountain men with the news of cornwallis's success at camden he had also received urgent orders to search the upcountry for patriots under colonel thomas sumter This plan was interrupted by news of Musgrove's mill and by orders calling Ferguson to a meeting in Camden with Cornwallis. On September 7th, Ferguson pushed across the western North Carolina border. He expected at Gilbert Town to surprise some of the mountain leaders who had retired there for safety after Musgrove's mill. In August, however, they had agreed to return to their homes across the mountains and raise a volunteer army to resist Ferguson's advance. Remaining at Gilbert Town during most of September, Ferguson was a constant menace to the bordering region. From his headquarters, early in the month, he tried to frighten the mountain leaders into submission. To carry out this plan, Ferguson paroled Samuel Phillips, a prisoner, and sent him into the mountains with a message to Colonel Isaac Shelby, who commanded the Patriot Militia of Sullivan County, North Carolina. According to a well-known account, Ferguson, in this message, solemnly warned Shelby and the other mountain people quote, that if they did not desist from their opposition to the British arms, he, Ferguson, would march his army over the mountains, hang their leaders, and lay their country waste with fire and sword. End quote. He followed this threat with action and pursued a patriot party to the slopes of the Blue Ridge before returning on September 23rd to his temporary base at Gilbertown feeling pretty confident that he had the mountain men scared. But all he had done was stick a torch in a hornet's nest. At the headwaters of the Watuga, the Holston, and the Nolichucky Rivers, in present-day eastern Tennessee, news of Ferguson's actions was received with growing alarm by the backcountry settlers. Their freedom-loving leaders were spurred in their determination to gather a volunteer force with all possible speed for a surprise attack that would destroy the British invader. Meeting at Jonesboro, Shelby and Colonel John Sevier, head of the militia in Washington County, North Carolina, hurriedly adopted a plan for immediate action. They sent forth a final appeal for volunteers, some of whom would remain behind to protect the settlements from the Indians while the main force marched quickly after Ferguson. Additional support was sought urgently from Colonel Charles McDowell and Colonel Benjamin Cleveland, who commanded other fighting men from the North Carolina border. Pleas for help were also sent to the local militia leaders of adjoining Washington County, Virginia. After consultation, it was agreed that Colonel William Campbell would bring a strong body of Virginia militia. All volunteers were urged to gather by September 25th at Sycamore Shoals on the banks of the Watuga near the present-day site of Elizabethton, Tennessee. On that date, over 1,000 of the mountain men assembled at the designated meeting place, In appearance, it was a rough but resourceful-looking gathering. Many of the fighters wore hunting shirts of buckskin, breeches, and gaiters of tan home-dyed cloth, and wide-brimmed hats covering long hair tied in a queue. Each was equipped with a knapsack, blanket, and a long hunting rifle. Most were mounted on horses, but some were on foot. With some of them had come members of their families and friends to see them off on their dangerous mission. Notable among the militia units present was that of Colonel William Campbell's, which numbered 400 men. To reach Sycamore Shoals, many of his men had traveled almost as far as they would in the final march to King's Mountain. The gathering was made memorable by the inspiring words of the Reverend Samuel Doak, a pioneer Scotch-Irish clergyman of the Watuga settlements. On the eve of their departure, he sought the Lord's blessing upon these brave men. To inspire and prepare them for the hardships they faced, he retold vividly the biblical story of the rise of Gideon's people against Midianites and of the defeat of those oppressors. At the close of his stirring sermon, he urged the mountain men to take as their battle cry, The Sword of the Lord and of Gideon. On the following day, September 26, 1780, the great adventure of the mountain men began and they left Sycamore Shoals on their march over the mountains. Five days later, after covering about 90 miles, they arrived at Quaker Meadows on the Catawba River. The first part of their route followed old hunting and Indian trails, difficult at times for passage by either man or beast, and this proved to be the most rugged portion of their march to King's Mountain. Nearing the crest of the mountains on September 27th in snow that stood above their bootstraps, Members of the expedition were alarmed by the desertion of James Crawford and Samuel Chambers. Not only were the Patriots afraid that the deserters would warn Ferguson's camp, that the traitors would alert the Tories of the region. Despite fears of a possible ambush, the Patriots crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains safely on September 29th. The two units, into which the volunteer army was divided, passed, respectively, through Gillespie Gap and what is believed to have been McKinney's Gap. Shortly afterwards, they were reunited at Colonel Charles McDowell's plantation at Quaker Meadows near the present site of Morganton, North Carolina, and here they rested during the evening of September 30th. In the meantime, Colonel Charles McDowell rejoined the Patriots on September 28th. By the evening of October 4th, the Patriots had pushed farther southward and camped near Denard's Ford on the Broad River. At this point, they temporarily lost Ferguson's trail but continuing southward on October 5th, they completed a march of 12 miles and rested that night at Alexander's Ford on the Green River. On October 6th, they pressed forward another 21 miles to reach the Cowpens. This point in South Carolina was so named because of the extensive cattle enclosures owned there by Hiram Saunders, a wealthy Tory. Ferguson's hope that the mountain men would be misled and continue southward toward 96 was a false one. From the Cowpens, the route of the Frontier Army was to be generally southeastward toward the Broad River and then north and east to King's Mountain. Along their route to the Cowpens, the mountain men were favored by good fortune. They received accurate information from Patriot supporters in the region regarding the country through which Ferguson's Corps had passed in its retreat toward King's Mountain and Charlotte. Their spirits were also spurred by Colonel Edward Lacey of South Carolina, who visited the Patriot camp on the Green River to report that a large body of North and South Carolina militia was ready to join the expedition at the Cowpens. As early as September 23rd, Colonel James Williams of South Carolina, with the permission of North Carolina Patriot authorities, had issued a call for Patriot recruits from the border of both states. His appeal was headed a call to arms, beef, bread and potatoes, and resulted in the assembling of 400 men. Included were the forces under total militia leaders such as William Hill, Edward Lacy, James Hawthorne, Frederick Hambright, William Chronicle, and William Graham. When, on the afternoon of October 6th, these forces were united with Colonel Campbell's command at the Cowpens, the combined volunteer army numbered approximately 1,000 790 men. At the Cowpens, the report of a Patriot spy named Joseph Kerr that Ferguson was only a few miles ahead in the vicinity of Kings Mountain confirmed earlier rumors of the British force's position. To overtake Ferguson without delay, the leaders of the Patriot expedition chose from their various commands a select group of stalwart fighting men, all mounted who immediately rode ahead during the night of October 6th towards King's Mountain. The exact strength of this advance party is not known, but it is certain to have exceeded 900 men. By this time, Ferguson's army was already encamped upon the top of King's Mountain. The decision to post his army on top of this ridge represented a change of his plan to push forward and join Cornwallis at Charlotte. It was a decision hard to understand, when it's realized how close he was to the security of the main British army. It is generally believed, however, that Ferguson made the decision deliberately and with the definite intention of meeting the Patriots in battle. That he felt secure in this position is shown from his letter of October 6th to Cornwallis, which stated, quote, I arrived today at King's Mountain and have taken a post where I do not think I can be forced by a stronger enemy than that against us. End quote. Ferguson was also known to be a vain man, operating with the largest independent command of his military career. It is probable that he could not resist the temptation to seek for himself the glory of still another victory. We'll rejoin our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Meanwhile, the picked group of mountain men rode through the night toward their objective under the cover of a drizzling rain. To keep the flintlocks of their weapons dry, bags, blankets, or even hunting shirts were wrapped around them. To add to their difficulties, a number of Campbell's men lost their way in the darkness. By the morning of October 7th, they were rounded up, and the progress of the march was delayed only a little. The Americans approached the scene of the battle with great caution. Their path was along the same route as that followed by Ferguson on the preceding day. They passed near his campsite at Tate's Plantation where they expected to find a covering force on the east bank of the Broad River. To avoid possible discovery at this point, they crossed the river at Cherokee Ford, two and a half miles below. By the forenoon of October 7th, the men and their horses showed the effects of the tiring overland march from the Cowpens. Despite the suggestion by a number of the leaders that a halt be called, Colonel Shelby is reported to have replied, I will not stop until night, if I have to follow Ferguson into Cornwallis' lines. It was not long before the Patriots learned definitely that Ferguson was but a few miles ahead, posted on King's Mountain. Constantly on the alert for Tories who could be expected to warn him of their approach, they followed the Ridge Road past present-day Antioch Church. From this point, they proceeded in a northerly direction to an old colonial road leading from North Carolina to what is now York, South Carolina. This road, which ran in a southeastward direction, led them over Ponder's Branch and a tributary of King's Creek to Hambright's Gap, not far from the site of the coming battle. King's Mountain Ridge, upon which the encounter soon occurred, extends 600 yards in a northeasterly direction and forms but a small part of the 16-mile King's Mountain Range. The summit of the ridge, which is stony, stands about 60 feet above the surrounding country, and is 60 to 120 feet wide. One of its main disadvantages is that the tree line stands almost to its top. This enables an expert rifleman to fire effectively from ample cover on either side of the ridge upon individuals who are standing on its crest. About a mile from the ridge, the Patriot leaders called a halt, the horses were hitched, and final battle instructions given the men. They were formed into two lines, each consisting of two columns, and were ordered to proceed on foot. Each detachment was to take a pre-assigned position at the base of the ridge to complete the encirclement of Ferguson's corps. The right flank column was composed of detachments under Major Winston, Col. Sevier, and Major McDowell, with Winston's force at the head of the column. The right and left center columns were commanded respectively by, by Colonels Campbell and Shelby. The left flank columns included the forces of Major Chronicle, Colonel Cleveland, and Colonel Williams, with Chronicle's force at the head of the column. As the march on the ridge began, Major Winston was detached with a number of men from Wilkes and Surrey counties to make a long detour to the right. It is believed that the purpose of Winston's assignment was to close quickly Ferguson's most logical line of retreat from the ridge. Facing the advancing frontiersmen, Ferguson had a force of 1,104 men. These included, in his provincial corps, some 100 rangers who had been selected from the King's American Rangers, the New Jersey Volunteers, and the Loyal American Regiment. The remainder of his force consisted of about a 1,000 Tory militia. His officers included Captain Abraham DePester, second in command, and Lieutenant Anthony Allaire, adjutant, both from New York. Dr. Uzal Johnson of New Jersey was the surgeon for the British force. After passing through Hambright's Gap, the frontier detachments moved rapidly into their preassigned positions around the ridge. Seeking cover in the wooded ravines, the Patriots advanced, and Campbell and McDowell hurriedly passed through the gap at the southwestern end of the ridge. They took positions respectively on the southeastern and eastern slopes. Sevier formed along the western slope, while Shelby took position on the northwestern slope. Meanwhile, the other Patriot detachments were forming along the bottom of the ravine, leading around the northern and northeastern base of the ridge. Ferguson's main camp was near the northeastern end of the ridge, but his picket line extended along the crest, nearly to its southwestern end. Near the steep base of the western ridge, 900 Patriots, including John Crockett, the father of Davy Crockett, formed eight detachments of a little over 100 men each. So far, Ferguson's sentries had not detected them. About 3 p.m. as the Patriots began to encircle the ridge, Ferguson's pickets sounded the alarm and engaged the advancing Mountaineers in a brief skirmish. Then, as they reached their positions, Campbell's and Sevier's men charged uphill screaming and shouting and were met and turned back downhill by a rushing bayonet attack intended to sow fear and panic. At the same time, Colonels Shelby, Williams, Lacey, Cleveland, Cambright, Winston, and McDowell's the men attacked the main Loyalist position, and the sounds of musket fire and battle lit up the entire ridge. Captain Abraham DePester, Ferguson's second-in-command, turned to Ferguson amidst the din and said, These things are ominous. These are the damned yelling boys. From the crest, the Tories and Provincials replied with a burst of trained volley firing. The Campbells and Shelbys men moved steadily up the slope Indian fashion, from tree to rock to tree, making themselves hard targets to hit. And the Loyalist balls were whistling over their heads, snapping branches and thudding into tree limbs. For many of them had not acquired the frontier hunting skills of aiming low when shooting downhill. For 10 to 15 minutes, they maintained their attack while the other Patriot detachments kept attacking and moving into positions around the ridge. While the trained Tory force depended on their discipline, their manhood and the bayonet, the mountain men relied upon their skill as marksmen. According to an eyewitness account of this phase of the battle, the mountain appeared volcanic. There flashed along its summit and around its base and up its sides one long sulfurous blaze. Ferguson believed steadfastly in the effectiveness of the bayonet charge, but the terrain at Kings Mountain proved more assailable by the rifle than defensible with the bayonet. As the two Patriot commands neared Ferguson's lines, the Tories charged and drove them down the slope at the point of the bayonet. Though they had no bayonets, the Patriots rallied at the foot and the unerring marksmanship of their deadly Kentucky and Pennsylvania rifles forced their pursuers to retire. Slowly following the retreating Tories and Provincials, Campbell's and Shelby's men were again driven down the rugged incline by the Tory bayonets. Taking cover behind trees and rock, the two Patriot commands again forced the Tories to retreat toward the crest. Three times the Tories charged downhill with bayonets, and three times they were forced to retreat again toward the top of the mountain. As the Tories began their third bayonet charge upon Campbell and Shelby, they were suddenly attacked along the northern and eastern slopes by the other Patriot detachments. Moving to meet the Patriot attack from these quarters, the Tories allowed Campbell and Shelby to gain and hold the southwestern summit. By now there was pandemonium on the mountain. One witness described it looking like a volcano about to burst with the thunder of guns and flashing of gun barrels. Legend insists that there were two very attractive women in Ferguson's camp who were said to be his followers, a part of the staff either as cooks or maids. One named Virginia Sal was killed as she tried to escort a wounded soldier to his tent. The second, Virginia Paul, was taken with the prisoners after the battle to Quaker Meadows whereupon she was released and directed to head for Cornwallis' camp. Now completely surrounded, Ferguson's disorganized and rapidly decreasing force was gradually pushed back toward its campsite. On the northeastern end of the ridge. His casualties were heavy. In this desperate situation with attacks and counterattacks raging on all sides, a piercing note of Ferguson's silver whistle urging his forces on continued to be heard above the shooting and shrill whoops of the mountaineers. As the ring of rebel attackers began to tighten, some loyalists began to attach white flags to their rifles, waving them in surrender. Ferguson rode among them, slashing at their muskets with his safe to stop them, screaming for his men to rally. At that point, Ferguson attempted to cut through Cleveland's lines near the northeastern crest, but was struck from his horse by musket balls fired by the mountain sharpshooters with Sevier. Ferguson fell from his horse, his foot caught in the stirrup, and his horse dragged him past the enemy line. He was lying, still breathing, after the battle ended when he was approached by one of the patriots and. Drawing a hidden pistol, he shot that Patriot in the stomach at close range. He was shot a number of times in return and he died a few minutes later. And later he was buried where he fell. Captain DePester, the second in command for Ferguson, assumed command and attempted to rally the confused surviving Tories and Provincials, but his efforts were useless and he ordered to surrender. During the bloody one-hour engagement that raged along the heavily wooded and rocky slopes, the Mountaineers gained a complete victory. They were veterans of countless frontier clashes, even though untrained in formal warfare, and with a slight loss of 28 killed and 62 wounded, had killed, wounded, or captured Ferguson's entire force of nearly 1,000 men, mostly Loyalists. The Loyalists suffered 290 killed, 163 wounded, and 668 taken prisoner but order and quiet were not immediately restored to the ragged battlefield. A number of Patriots continued to fire into the group of defenseless Tories because it was not known that a surrender had begun. Others shouting, Buford's Quarter fired upon the Tories to avenge the merciless slaughter of Colonel Abraham Buford's Patriot Force by Colonel Bannister Tarleton's British Raiders at the Waxhaws in South Carolina on May 29th, earlier that year. While Dr. Uzal Johnson of Ferguson's Corps tended the wounds of Patriots and Tories alike, others buried Ferguson's body and those of the Tory dead on the battlefield. Some reports said that Ferguson's body was desecrated and wrapped in oxhide prior to burial. He had made his threat, and it had been answered. The remaining dead were buried in shallow graves, and the wounded loyalists who could not stand were, according to one report, left on the field to fend for themselves. Of the Patriots killed in the engagement, only four, Major William Chronicle, Captain John Maddox, William Rabb, and John Boyd, are buried there. They share a common grave at the site of the Chronicle markers. The Patriots rested on the battleground overnight. On Sunday morning, October 8, they started the homeward march. Both victors and captives came near to starvation during the march off the mountain, owing to severe shortages of food needed to sustain them from the fighting and the wounds suffered. One week later, they reached Bickerstaff's plantation near Gilbertown with their prisoners. Aaron Bickerstaff, a Loyalist, had been mortally wounded in the battle. His brother, Benjamin, was a patriot and was being held on a prison ship in the Charleston Harbor. British prison ships from Boston to Charleston were floating death camps for patriots. The frontiersmen had not dared delay their march, for they feared Cornwallis would send Colonel Tarleton in pursuit to avenge Ferguson's defeat. At Bickerstaff's, a court-martial was held, and thirty Tories were condemned to death. Of these, nine were hanged, and the remainder spared. These men were testified against by patriots who had fought in the same companies with these loyalists, but had changed sides after witnessing the brutality that the loyalists had shown. Since an investigation showed that these nine Tories had robbed, pillaged, and committed more serious crimes, the Patriots believed they were justified in this action of hanging them. They also wished to retaliate for similar types of rude justice rendered so often in the past by British. Nine of the prisoners were hanged before Isaac Shelby brought an end to the hangings. His decision came after an impassioned plea from one of the Biggerstaff women, probably Mary Van Zant Biggerstaff, who was Michael's wife? The Patriot prisoner's wife. The Patriot detachments reached Quaker Meadows on october fifteenth with the prisoners. From this point they were marched northward toward Virginia. This was in accordance with the instructions of october twelfth from General Gates, the American commander in the South at that time. He would soon be replaced, he would soon be replaced by General Green. On october twenty sixth, Colonel Campbell entrusted Colonel Cleveland with the safekeeping of the prisoners and with Colonel Shelby called upon General Gates to determine the fate of the remaining Tories. Meanwhile, the volunteer army melted away. Most of its members lost no time in returning to their home settlements. As the number of troops guarding the prisoners declined, escape for Tories became easy. After a long period of indecision, the remaining Tory prisoners were finally moved to Hillsboro, North Carolina and exchanged. The mighty army of mountain men whose very existence confounded Ferguson now vanished as quietly as it had gathered. But the victory on King's Mountain was known and talked about throughout all the South as fast as news could fly, and huge changes were about to come in terms of support for the rebel cause. The lifting of the spirits of the Patriots in the Carolinas and the renewal of their will to resist the British invaders were important and immediate effects of Ferguson's defeat at King's Mountain. News of this decisive victory spread rapidly through the region, bringing out stronger Patriot militia forces in North Carolina and from nearby Virginia. It also revived Patriot guerrilla warfare in South Carolina. Tories in the Carolinas became greatly discouraged and disorganized. The British did not immediately sense the importance of this sharp improvement in Patriot morale and were inclined to discount the loss of the relatively small Tory force, under Ferguson. At the headquarters of the British forces in New York, it was even denied that the battle had even taken place. The unexpected success of the Patriots at King's Mountain caused the delay of almost three months in Cornwallis's northward advance, and this was a serious loss of time, and that had a far-reaching effect upon his campaign in 1781. The immediate turn of events in the war in the South that came with the victory at King's Mountain forced Cornwallis to abandon his foothold at Charlotte, in the unfriendly territory of North Carolina. Fearful that the Patriots would try to regain control of key posts in South Carolina, he retreated to Winsboro, in the upper part of that state. Here he took up a defensive position during the first part of the winter of 1780-81 to await reinforcements sent south by General Clinton. Although ill during most of this period, Cornwallis attempted to regain the support of his former Tory allies in the region and to plan a second invasion of North Carolina. But Patriot leaders had organized a new offensive in the South. At Charlotte, early in December 1780, General Nathaniel Green replaced General Gates as American commander in the South with the resolve to recover this country or die in the attempt, quoted Green. He divided his small, ill-equipped army into two partisan forces and directed them to distract Cornwallis by threatening Camden on his right and 96 on his left. And this daring plan gave Green the military initiative in the Carolinas during 1781. Green's decision to put Daniel Morgan in command of one division led to a Patriot victory at the Cowpens, where British losses were staggering, 110 dead, over 200 wounded, and 500 captured. Cowpens was followed by a standoff at Guilford Courthouse, where, it's estimated, the British lost one third of their force and some of their best officers. Siege of the British fort at 96 put additional pressure on the British. Subsequent Cornwallis blunders and British failure to provide naval superiority led to his Entrapment and Patriot victory at Yorktown. The blow was decisive. The war was lost, and American forces in the South played a great part in that final victory. Additionally, historians point to numerous militia skirmishes in the backcountry and to Green's long-term strategy of disrupting British logistics as crucial to final victory. The Battle of the Cowpens, in context of the Southern Campaign, was also called an important turning point of the war in the South. Moreover, it contained the tactical masterpiece of the entire war, Morgan's unique deployment of troops including effective use of the militia and maximization of their strengths. Like King's Mountain before, the victory at Cowpens was decisive and complete, but there was a difference. King's Mountain had been an important victory over Tories. Cowpens was a victory over crack British regulars. King's Mountain and Cowpens had both been political and psychological victories for the hearts and minds of the population, in effect, blunting recruitment of loyalists. The Cowpens' victory also boosted Northern morale, resulting in additional and greatly deserved military assistance for General Greene. These battles stopped a long string of retreats by American forces and initiated a chain of events leading to eventual Patriot victory at Yorktown and the end of the War for Independence. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast. If you enjoyed this story, please do send us a review. We would appreciate it very much. We'll be back with a brand new story next Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll see you then.